The First Tee with Robbie Greenfield and Zane Scotland. Brought to you by the DP World Tour, the race to Dubai. Hello and welcome along to another episode of The First Tee with the DP World Tour. Hosted by myself, Robbie Greenfield, and former player, now coach and all-round golf aficionado, Zane Scotland. Coming up then, a full debrief on a remarkable three days in Rome, which saw Europe recapture the Ryder Cup, sparking incredible scenes of celebration for the boys in yellow and blue. For the Americans, so many questions to answer after their all-star team came stuttering out of the blocks and left their eventual rally too late. We'll look back on it all from Caddygate to Hatgate and loads more in the company of broadcaster James Gregg, a man who was inside the ropes throughout with a front row seat as part of the BBC Five Live commentary team. Without further ado then, let's get into it. Where did you watch it, Zane? What's your overall takeaway on it? I was nicely set on my sofa. I, I pitched up, had my drinks and snacks all ready to go. I like to watch big sporting events pretty much on my own. Unless I'm there, in the mix of it, I like to just have it on the television, on my own, have my own thoughts about it. I like to sit there nice and quiet and take it all in. And fortunately, the boys did the business and really, really made my Sunday roast uh, taste so nice. I know that would have been a huge inspiration for them. Um, Yeah, (laughs) home on my sofa. And our special guest, a man who has been striding the sun-baked fairways of the Marco Simone Country Club in his role as commentator for BBC Five Live in a position which myself and Zane are incredibly envious of. It is fantastic to be joined by James Gregg of the Five Live team. James, welcome to the first tee by DP World Tour podcast. Great to have you on. Yes, honestly, great to be here. Um, you're going to have a bit of time here where I'm just going to be rambling on about all sorts because I've only just landed back from Rome and... I've not really had that much time to talk things through. So there's going to be a lot of talking out loud about some of the brilliant moments that I'm glad that I didn't get my phone out to film because they're just going to stick in my head forever. And that is the way it should be with top class sport like that. Europe, 16 and a half. USA, 11 and a half. I have to say, jump in at this point and say that Zane and I I think more out of loyalty to Europe than than real conviction on whether they would actually get it done. We did predict this on last week's episode of the podcast, but that home streak continues. It's now going to be extended to 34 years. James, sum up yesterday for us, inside the ropes, Europe. I suppose there were some nervy moments midway through that singles contest, but ultimately it was comfortable and the scenes at the end were something to savour. Absolutely fizzing the atmosphere it was, Robbie, because in the build-up to the Masters, the Open, even the Solheim Cup to an extent, you don't get that mini flurry of news pages or sports wires or bits on whatever TV channel you've got on. You get a little bit of that prior to the majors. With the Ryder Cup, it seems like the build-up starts two weeks out. So by the time you get to the first tee shot on Friday... The atmosphere is that of, okay, can we just get this going now? And everybody's nervous and anxious. And I I don't have anything to be nervous or anxious about because I'm not hitting a golf shot. So I can't imagine what it's like for some of the players. And actually what was quite interesting on Friday morning is that there was a lot of the US team particularly who were walking towards the walkway where the players come out of the first tee out of the tunnel and just standing there and just soaking it in a little bit. You could just see them lurking, peering, really soaking in what was you know, going to greet them on the first tee. 
and then just retreating back to the clubhouse and soaking it in from there. Many of them and the ones who were in the later foursomes pairings on Friday, they went and had a little sneaky look, soaked it in, then went back to the putting green. Just to get a little bit of that going through your veins first and channel that in whichever way you want, whether it's to go, okay, it's not so bad and block it all out your mind, or whether it's to try and turn that into something and being really pumped up, which actually the Europeans did, I think, really, really well. But yesterday afternoon, Robbie, it was perhaps the greatest sporting atmosphere I've ever experienced. And although, you know, I'm not a, a wily old fox of sports broadcasting <laughs> just yet, um, I, I've still got quite a few, you know, to kind of put behind me. But yeah, when Justin Rose hold that put on, on 18 to tie the, the final match of the day on Friday... I've never heard a noise like that because it seemed like everybody who was around the first tee, everybody who was jockeying for position up hole six and 15 and 10 and all that kind of stuff, all the really good vantage points, it seemed like they'd all flock towards the 18th for that final moment. So as you can imagine, when that putt goes in, it's the loudest roar of the day and it was the last mm. putt of the day. And that was, it was deafening. It really was. And not to get too geeky in terms of radio, but I'm, I'm pressing the headphones against my ears because I'm thinking, I can't hear what the producers are saying. I can't hear what any of the other commentators are saying. You just got to guess. So you're kind of shouting. And um, that was the same for me. I actually was there. I was commentating on the McElroy-Fitzpatrick match when uh, Cantlay holds out on Saturday night just before all the controversy. And that was, again, you know, obviously not as loud that time because you've got the, you know, mm. the, the Americans in, in that sense. But the atmosphere was was still indescribable. I, I can't. Re it was so tense walking down eighteen, and as Cantlay stood over, it's completely silent. There was no muppets who'd had too much to drink who were trying to put him off up the fairway. There was nothing like that. Everybody was just focusing on the on the putt. And I looked round afterwards, and there was nobody with camera phones in their hands. There was nobody doing that. And again, you know, I don't want to go go on too much about that. But that was that was just people just so engrossed in the moment. And again, I just don't see that at any of the sporting event. It's there's there's nothing quite like it. Yeah, and the, in terms of celebration as well, we, we were talking, James, about how sombre and quite sober the celebrations are in majors. Even you know, you get a guy like Scheffler who wins the Masters, and and he's kind of doffing his cap very politely. Even Victor at the Tour Championship. I mean, we witnessed some scenes yesterday. The old fella taking the running jump into the water uh, randomly, <laughs> that went viral. Shane Lowry seemingly at the centre of everything. The scenes on the bus where the European players are, are singing all sorts and all manner of chants. What, what was the craziest thing you witnessed yesterday during the celebrations and uh, what sort of sticks out? I turned around on 18. I was walking down, I was greenside. And I turned around and there was just a huge swathe of spectators coming down the fairway towards the green. And I was thinking, okay, that's fine. We sometimes see that. You know, if you think back to Tiger Woods winning the Tour Championship back in 2019 at Eastlake, for example, they allowed the spectators there on the 18th hole to come up. And it was a controlled thing, wasn't it? And there's great videos. If nobody's ever seen that, have a little look at it because it is glorious. And Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods playing in the final group of the Tour Championship, they're just walking up with thousands of spectators behind them. It was different yesterday afternoon because you had thousands of people. I don't know how many thousands. I'd have to watch the footage back and see an aerial shot of just how many people were coming down behind us. But they were not stopping because there was nobody stopping them. So it was people running towards the green. And I was thinking, this this could get really silly. And there was still Shane Lowry and Jordan Speed to finish their match. 
And there was myself and not just colleagues from the BBC, but there was also the colleagues from, uh, you know, Sky and and writers and photographers who were thinking, okay, I think we actually need to walk onto the green ourselves to get out of the way of this big bunch of people who were all just trying to get as close as they possibly could to the action. So when Jordan Speed's lining up his long birdie putt, I'm literally hanging over the water on the 18th. <laughs> And I'm thinking, if 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 anybody else gets onto this green, I'm in the I'm in the water, and not at my own choosing. Not like the bloke who like Colonel Sanders who dived in head first. This is going to be a disaster. So you know, I'm kind of clinging on. I don't even know who it was, a cameraman or somebody from NBC. And I'm grabbing onto him. And if I'd have gone, he'd have gone as well. So it would have been absolute bedlam. But it was that that was that was crazy. Shane Lowry whipping up the crowd. That 16th hole. I'm interested from your guys' perspective. What did the 16th hole look like? on the TV because that was the best hole of the week. Did you get that impression from, from the telly? Yeah, completely. Like that was almost like when they would cut away from the golf, you're looking forward to getting to 16. And when they came, when they did flash it back, it was like, this is the one we want to see because it was in reach for everybody, almost set out a length where they can't not go for it. And then just the way the hole sat left to right and the pin being back right. So that was like, and they've all got that, it was just set a perfect distance where it wasn't a full driver, which means they'd have to hit a cutty driver. Yeah. So which would then pull the water into play short right, okay? Exactly, yeah. And, you, and, and getting to, and it was, and I think it's that, it's that familiarity of like, we see in shot tracers, you're seeing, oh, he pulled it left. And then when it was set off, like, oh, that's a good one. That's, that's on the right line. I just thought that that, for me, my, my memory from the Ryder Cup will be, be that whole. I think like the way that the Marco Simone was purpose built, basically. I think the 16th was the one that really all came together and became such a familiar hold during the week. So from a viewing experience, that's what we want to see. Like, we can all play my customer. We can all play golf and, you know, hold a putt. But is that, that, that's the one skill that a regular golfer can't do is hit that high, cutty 310-yard driver to a green, stop it 10 feet. On television, that one was brilliant. That's cool because I've not actually, I've, like I said, I've only just got back. I've not really spoken about the Ryder Cup with anybody other than people who I was kind of walking around the golf course with. So that's an interesting one to know because that 16th, we were going on about it so much. I'm thinking, I hope that people who are watching it on the TV and then listening to us are actually kind of agreeing in a way because we're waxing lyrical about this fantastic third to last hole where so many matches were either being decided or close to being decided or there was big swings happening not just on Sunday it must be said all the way through from Friday morning and that was just yeah it, but the big grass bank behind the hole they had these ridiculously big corporate hospitality tents we, we know what they are what they look like but these were like three or four stories high, everybody leaning over the balcony, just trying to get a bit of a glimpse. And then, you know, with the with the water in play and, and, and a bit of breeze into the face. But as you came down that hill, that will stick with me forever, I think. I think what it underlined to me as well is how ridiculous these guys are in, at golf. The fact that they can essentially turn a 300-yard hole with water all down the right and a narrow entrance to the green with a green that slopes towards the water, that they can reduce this effectively to a par three. I know a lot of them did go in the water, but plenty of them also chipped in for eagle. Um, I mean, I swear to God, every time I watch that hole, under the most intense pressure, I mean, hats off to Tommy Fleetwood. I know hats off became the phrase of the week after what happened with Mr. Patrick Cantley. 
Tommy Fleetwood, if ever you needed a man to step up, um, you know, hitting that drive on on 16, just the perfect little peel of a left, a little fade that never left that little very narrow entrance to the green. It just kind of underlines. I mean, James, the amount of insane golf shots, whether it be Scotty Scheffler almost slam dunking it on the 17th uh, on the opening day, whether it be the ridiculous putts we saw hold by Patrick Cantlay on 18, by John Rahm on 18, by Justin Rose, by Victor Hovland all on 18, by some of those tee shots on 16, Rory McIlroy bombing driver to within about 10 feet on the 11th. I mean, there were just so many incredible golf shots under the most intense of pressure. And it's something that we talked about in the preview. The Ryder Cup seems to draw out more heroics than, than a normal tournament. And I'm sure as you were just scurrying around, trying to keep pace of it all in, in your commentary position, that was something that was not lost on you. Certainly not. The one that springs to my mind, and some of those I've seen back, the shot from Rahm yesterday on 10, obviously in that top match, which was so crucial, just to get it on the green from that ditch. Uh, that was a, that was an incredible shot. I didn't see that live. I saw that on a big screen and the crowds were going absolutely crazy. But there was um, there was a shot, and Zane, you'll, you'll, you'll know this. I think you might have even posted something on social media. But just give people a bit of a clue as to how difficult this shot must have been. The one I'm talking about is Rory McIlroy on 17, obviously in a losing cause on Saturday night in the four balls, but on a downhill lie, ball below his feet as well. So just everything screams, this isn't working. And he opens the face of that lob wedge up, pointing to the sky. Green above lie, him. Green, ab- him. green yeah. above him. Obviously, it's the only match remaining still out on the golf course and slid the club under it absolutely, you know, just perfectly. And it it took one skip, one big firm skip, and then just slammed the brakes on, almost screwing it back. And it was only a 30-yard flop shot. And it stopped a couple of feet away. I know then Cantley then went on to birdie and, and then birdie the last as well, as we all know. But that was, I think, the best shot I've seen live. And it might sound boring a little bit, that, because... It's not a high towering four iron to three feet or it's not a driver that's, you know, cutting perfectly onto the green like Fleetwoods was yesterday in the singles. But that was a shot that I thought, in theory, you know, we can we can all hold putts because, we're, you know, it only takes a rock of his shoulders. And in theory, we can all hit chip shots. The ones that, you know, a lot of the time that you, you see on the TV or you might see when you go to the Open or what, what, whatever tournament it is, you might go, oh, well, actually, that big four iron, I can't hit that shot. I can't hit a four iron 240 yards. In theory, we can play that shot that McElroy played because it's it's a basic short skill. It's only a 30-yard shot. But Zane, we can't play that shot because it's Rory McElroy who's done it and nobody has the skill set to do that. Not, not one person out of the 24 of the players in the Ryder Cup even, let alone us lot. That was the best shot I've seen. And if you if, if you do get a chance, you've shared it on your social media. Yeah, you? it's, it's on there somewhere. Like, you, and, and in that moment, to hit that shot at any time is just an exceptional shot. But it's and this is like what the big players do. There's a nucleus of players, which is like Hovland, Ram, Scheffler, Rory. Like they are able to do those things 
in the big, big situations, in the big moments. When I look at shots like that, I just, I imagine myself trying to play them and the knees buckling and me blading it <laughs> about 150 yards across the green. But I mean, yeah, the, 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 the ability to pull off these shots, high tariff shots under the most incredible pressure, even the up and down that Max Homer managed to pull off on 18 after he'd taken an unplayable and he just flopped it out of very thick rough on a very sloping green, the ball rolled about nine or ten feet past the pin and then he holds the putt. I mean, I don't know what comes over these guys, but I want to get to the post-mortem. And, and obviously the, the real post-mortem is taking place on the American side. It's become a contest that we're used to seeing the home team dominate, James. The last Ryder Cup that was won by an away team was that miracle at Medina. You've got to go back to 2004 before that, where Hal Sutton's kind of disastrous captaincy led to that landslide win by the Europeans. But it's really become a home game, the Ryder Cup. And as strong as the American team was and, and, and is on paper... I watch that event and something comes over those players. They they seem to shrink. They seem to not want to be there half the time. And I'm keen to get your thoughts on where this stems from. On this particular occasion, was this result more down to kind of European brilliance or was it down to American shortcomings, for want of a better word? You know what? It's interesting because I've been thinking a lot about this home game scenario. And you go 2012, okay. Incredible comeback from a very strong European team. That was purely down to the brilliant golf. Since then, you look at Paris, for example, a golf course that was set up perfectly for the European players. It was a team full of 12 who were all high quality. There was nobody there who you raised an eyebrow at, even with the captain's picks, which is very rare. The US team, again, a little bit out of sorts. There was perhaps a couple of picks in there that you should, they shouldn't have. But either way, the golf course was set up perfectly. Okay, so so you then move it on to Whistling Straits. Post-COVID, no European fans there. Very difficult golf course. A terrible selection of players who were over the hill. Lee Westwood partnering Matt Fitzpatrick in a couple of matches there. I mean, it was like just gifting them points. And I know Sergio actually performed very well, but... There was there, again. There was players who shouldn't have been in that team. So actually, I, I just think we're on we're on a run of the away side. Actually, just not really being quite at the races. That wasn't the case this time around. You know, you guys obviously discussed it last week. Very very strong on paper. You know all the stats about the world rankings and the different amount of wins and major champions. You've got the world number one spearheading the team. Brooks Kepka, one of the three major winners in that team as well. But the biggest thing for me was the fact that most of them. In fact, 11 of them out of the 12 of the US team hadn't played competitive golf since Eastlake, since Eastlake, the Tour Championship. That's unforgivable because you've got to be playing regular golf, particularly for something like that. And actually, then you see on Sunday how well they performed in the singles. And they almost felt like, you felt like they've warmed up now. They're back into it. They're back into that competitive mode. They've got rid of the rustiness, whatever was there. They're back into actually tournament golf. The European guys, all 12 played at Wentworth two weeks ago in what is effectively the biggest event on the DP World Tour. So you compare and contrast the preparations there. And Zane, you can sort of just tell me how much as a professional golfer that makes a difference. Because to me, that seems absolutely crackers. Justin Thomas and Max Homer, actually, it was Homer who also played because he was defending the Fortinet Championship up in California. But that was two weeks ago. That was one tournament. And actually, you could see that Homer was one of the better US players. 
And I'm not saying it's all down to that one tournament that he played in and, you know, a warm-up effectively before turning up in Italy. But the rest of them to have not played any competitive golf. You can they could have played golf every day. They could have been playing for twenty dollars or you know little skins games around the around the home courses with their mates. It's not the same thing. Absolutely. I mean, the difference there is winning and losing the Ryder Cup. It was almost as if it made uh, Mark Lou Donald look like he played a master stroke by asking them all to play at Wentworth. So they're all kind of hot. Or did it really highlight, you know? Um, the I don't know arrogance is the right word from, from the Americans that they felt like they could not compete for uh, nine uh, uh, nine or eleven of them not pick, compete for five weeks and think that they can turn up with their best games against some special players from Europe and as it turned out you know looking at I'm not always massive on numbers but it couldn't have played out that way more they basically lost it in the first session after that it was a very close Ryder Cup I think their class kind of showed towards the end that they didn't give in and they started to make a bit of amends towards the end. But as you say, mm. it was if like it just too it just took like too long to get their tanker turning in the right direction and they just couldn't get fired up. And 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 as you said there, actually, you know, Justin Thomas for me was a question mark whether he should have been in that team. Uh, um when he did get the pick because he's been in poor form this year and, you know, you could say uh, you know, like Dustin Johnson would have been, you know, a walk in that team that gets on with everybody. Really good player would have would have wouldn't have got plastered by anything. But as you said, Max Homer, Justin Thomas, arguably looked the most kind of ready to go players. Yes, definitely. That. And it was just even just one tournament, it just breaks out that little bit of rust, that tiny bit of overthinking. Because as a, as a player, rust basically is overthinking. So when a player is really sharp, what's happening is they've been playing for a week or two up to it, and they know where their game is. Even if it's not perfect, they're not overthinking. They're stepping up and picking their targets and go. And they know what they've got. Rust, basically, is where a player is almost um, consciously doing things. A bit like driving a car when you first start to drive. You think, right, I'm going to change gear, put my foot on the clutch. There's that little piece. And then once you get going, you, it's almost like a click. And it goes, right, I know that I'm hitting I'm hitting a shot, which is a slight fade. Boom, just you know, give me the club. No fire cone. Off you go. And it's that clarity of thought and you can see that but you know they're in the game by the end of it mm-hmm. but at the start it just all looked a little bit clunky um, much to the dismay of the americans but europeans you know made the most of it the other Certainly. thing j- j- just to jump in here on on the foursomes i mean that was well documented as well james that the, the the terrible record that the americans have in foursomes particularly on the road again foursomes has become very much a home strength. I think that whistling straights, the Americans did very well in the foursome. So it's not like they can't play alternate shot, but to your point, a lot of them hadn't played competitive golf in five weeks to then go and play alternate shot with guys (laughs) who maybe, you know, their games they're not particularly familiar with or they've always got these things with the ball, the different manufacturers that they use. Um, You know, Scheffler and Kepka. To lose to Auburg and and um, and Hovland nine and seven on the second day, world number one and the the PGA champion, the five time major winner, who I heard were thrown together, um, and who weren't aware that they were going to play foursomes together because they they had been so heavily beaten on day one that that was almost a reactionary a reactionary play by Zach Johnson. I mean that that is ineptitude at a dizzying scale isn't it from a from a powerhouse team to uh to, to fail so dismally in in that format specifically 
uh, leaves a lot of questions to be asked that weren't being answered by Zach Johnson. And what were they? Something like plus seven or plus eight through 11 holes when they shook hands? It was... Absolutely. I mean, that's astonishing. And you look at the way that the European team... I mean, Luke Donald, by the way, can we just, just point this out, is that he has put... I don't think he's put a foot wrong. I was going to say, if he has put a foot wrong, he barely has. He hasn't put one wrong. He obviously got the job after Stenson defected to live. Controversial circumstances. A team that really, if you'd have looked at the potential team coming off the back of the heaviest defeat in Ryder Cup history, um, you know, you would probably think of Luke Donald as, what's he doing taking this? It's a poison chalice. But he's he's just done everything amazingly. Even to the vice captains, I thought they were really shrewd. You know, obviously he had Francesco Molinari and Eduardo Molinari, but Eduardo is does all the stats for pretty much all the European tour players, all the European team, I should say. So you know, Fitzpatrick he sends all of his you know handwritten notes over to to Molinari, and he he sort of dissects them and then tells them what he needs to be working on and. Several of the other players use him as well. And they were doing this was this was incredible. They were I was chatting to Mike Walker, the coach of Fitzpatrick and several others on um on the range on Thursday afternoon. And I was sort of trying to get into him, you know, who's going to be playing with who. And he said, Well, actually, you know, so and so's third on this, on the stats, and da-da-da. And I said, What do you mean on the stats? He said, This week, they've been recording shots uh for stats purposes in practice. And I, I'd never heard that before in a Ryder Cup. Like, no no team, I don't think, has ever done that. That's an unprecedented thing. And by the end of the week's practice, um, they had a, a full, basically a cheat sheet of who was doing what the best. And and it, that was it. You know, complete clarity of thought and, and whatever. All the players I know were kind of given two or three potential partners they might be playing with. And obviously that matched up in the practice round. And you looked at that first foursomes uh, session and all the European players were playing with somebody who played their own ball and also somebody who matched up well with in, in terms of the stats because it was it was the, the iron players, the, the stronger iron players teed off on the first hole effectively because then they got the par threes and then if you had somebody who was a dynamite putter, um, they would be player B effectively. And it was all basically a mathematical equation to do that. But that takes prior planning. You can't just go, you know what, we're getting hammered. Let's stick the world number one and, and Brooks kept out. You can't do that. You just can't do it. There's got to be method behind some, the, the madness effectively. And what another thing that struck me walking around the golf course was, was just how many vice captains there were for the US team. You'll have seen this on the TV, but they were all there out in full force. There was the likes of Ben Crenshaw, there was Stuart Sink, there was um, uh, Davis Love the Third. There was all these people, and I was thinking, how possible? Jim Furyk, <laughs> yeah, Jim Furyk was there. There, there. there was there was loads, wasn't there? There was absolutely loads. I'm, I'm missing loads of them. Out. There, there are pretty Fred Fred yeah. Couples, who is yeah. my childhood hero aside, and I won't I won't hear a bad word said about Freddie. They're a pre- <laughs> they're a pretty uninspiring bunch, aren't they? I mean, look. If you're going to assemble a, a kind of crackpot team of of you know charismatic leaders, as much as I respect these guys for the golfers that they are, I'm sorry, but Jim Furyk and the two-time losing Ryder Cup captain Davis Love and Stuart Sink, who is probably the most unpopular major champion of all time, uh, <laughs> is not going to be is, is not going to be my, my my picks. I'm sorry, I, I don't see them 
inspiring that team and creating and culture is that very overused word isn't it in the mm. Ryder Cup it's it's the as Luke Donald has said it it's and and Claude as well on our podcast last week was saying it's about creating the culture in which the team can thrive and the players can produce their best golf. And that's really the the main and, and real soul and, and primary role of the captain. And nothing about, and I'm not an insider by any means, and I, I wasn't inside the US team room and I could be totally wrong. They could have fostered an incredible culture, but nothing about Zach Johnson and his team spoke to a, a brilliant culture that was being really honed and, and, and carefully you know, cultivated from the ground up. I entire I entirely agree with everything you just said, Robbie. Like entirely agree. However, what I would say is there's a lot of people saying the Americans don't care and that kind of thing. And actually I disagree with that because you saw the state that Scotty Scheffler was in, having lost that incredible foursomes match, um, nine and seven, and he was crying, and actually all those guys down the stretch were were pumped. They wanted to create their own miracle at Medina. I don't know what it would have been. I'm not even going to try and think of something clever um, <laughs> about with Rome in it, but yes, but you know what I mean. The Renaissance resurgence in Rome, Rome. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, there we yeah, go. Yeah, Renaissance yeah. is better, actually, more appropriate. <laughs> I like that, yeah. but yeah. So I, 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 they, they were desperate to try and try and create something. Um, so I, I'm not having that. I was, you know, flicking on Twitter early, and there was people saying, "Oh, they, you know, they just don't want it enough," and there's all the stuff around Cantlay, which you know we might get onto. But that what that was, um, yeah, I, I, I don't buy that. Professional golfers, no matter what it is, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to play with some top level pros. And even if you're playing for a tenner, you know, a 10 pound note on a cold winter's evening in England, you know, that they are dying to win. So I don't think that they were, you know, not as bothered as the Europeans or anything like that. I just think it was a combination of preparation, poor captaincy. Um, clearly not as into the stats and into the minutiae as Luke Donald and Eduardo Molinari and his brilliant team were. Um, and, you know, perhaps the culture too um, wasn't wasn't that. But we'll never know about that. But certainly the other points definitely stand. I've got a question for you, Zane, because it was something that Justin Rose mentioned in the press conference afterwards, the winner's press conference, where, where he kind of alluded to Europe buying into the idea and the ethos that they play for something bigger than themselves. They they often evoke the spirit of Seve and, you know, you could maybe raise an eyebrow at that. You could kind of roll your eyes a little bit because it's something that they do roll out a lot. But they they clearly have bought into this idea that the, there is a very special heritage and a, and a real privilege to playing in a Ryder Cup. And I'm not sure I've ever heard the Americans, yes, they want to win. Yes, they want to compete. Yes, they want to win the Ryder Cup. But I'm not sure I've ever heard them speak in the reverential tones that the Europeans seem to reserve for this competition. And and maybe yet again, this could be the fact that within hindsight, we're reflecting on a great European win and it's easy to, to view it like this. But what's your take on that, Zane? That the Americans perhaps haven't kind of bought into the, I suppose, the heritage and the, and, the, and the overarching ethos of the Ryder Cup as much as, as the Europeans have? Yeah, well, we kind of like, I think what kind of explained it was, uh, John Ryan was like talking about, you know, how, how players in the past, talking about Seve, Nick Faldo, you know, the, these players that have gone by, was he, 
and they've had moments in the Ryder Cup, which, I mean, we could probably, um, I'm probably the oldest on this podcast, but I can remember those greats and the shots they hit and can relay them. And then someone younger like John Rump, he can also relay these moments. Whereas kind of kind of what you were saying about some of the, the vice captains, like there's not many people on the American team who are going to be able to recite a great shot that maybe Paul Azinger hit at some point or or even Fred Couples or somebody. It's, it just... It seems to sit a bit different with the Europeans, and I think you what it's and it, it, I think it started like Rory was quite interesting when he started. You know, he was not about the Ryder Cup before he played it, and he was very much like, "Nah, it's an exhibition." He actually said, "It's an exhibition match." And um, there was a nice piece on social media last week where they actually showed him played him back his own comments about that, and he kind of laughed and you know talked about how important it was. It was it's a good little piece, and. On from that, there was a, there was a big moment um, back in the day. I think it would have been so. It was before Muirfield, and I, I think it was a, it was a time when they played against America in America, and they nearly won. I should I should be more prepared I, myself, taking the, <laughs> a little leaf out of Zach Johnson's book here. But they had just been beat, and everybody had come back into the European dressing room, and everyone was absolutely gutted. And uh, I mean, Nick Faldo, he he told me the story, and he said Sevy went round, and he was ging everybody up saying, we nearly got them this time. Next time, we'll beat them on their soil. And he said that everybody kind of really came together and was so G'd up as a team, which kind of plays into what you're saying there, that, that this is bigger than you just being a nice golfer. This is about Europe proving themselves. And uh, and then they did go ahead and they won at Muirfield with a village. And then Rory kind of making his statement this week about the biggest challenge in golf now is to win a Ryder Cup on foreign soil. And he's kind of made, he laid that statement out there. Probably, I mean, I think probably for the whole tour and just to get everybody going. And it is exciting now because I think more than ever, it's become so apparent now that winning on foreign soil is, is the, uh, is the piece to resistance basically. And they're going to go to Bethpage after, I'm sure that, that comment from Rory McIlroy is going to be replayed mm. to a New York crowd and it's going to be it's going to be brutal we got songs and I'm sure they got more like abusive chants but it's going to be very, very hostile but I think but but again what's kind of good is he's kind of putting it out there and I think we've got a bunch of players who are like they're almost going to work on that challenge yeah. and and it, there's a little that, that comment from Rory does feel a little bit Sebi like whether he did it on purpose or not he's kind of like he's kind of he is a bit like the new Sebi he has controversial moments he has a flash of brilliance and um, has a good short game, like uh, like James explained earlier. Yeah, I, I think to that point, like it's just so apparent that the Europeans get it that if they go out and lost all five matches, but the team won, they would be happy. The Americans, yeah. I just don't feel like the Americans will be a little bit more like, yeah, we lost, but I won my matches. You know, yeah. that little vibe just comes through a little bit. There's no slant on them because that's, that's how they, they operate. I kind of agree with you on that because you got that feeling that Kapka, despite getting pasted alongside Scheffler, which I love mentioning, I think I mentioned it about four times on this podcast already. <laughs> um, it was about seven, wasn't it? <laughs> impartial BBC commentator here. Um, I think that, um, actually, you know, you got that feeling when, when Brooks won that match yesterday. I thought, well, mm. he's just going to be going, well, I've won my match. Singles, we know, three and two. Back in, back in the day, I mean, this is a long time ago, but there was an England match uh, at Woodall Spa. And a friend of mine played called John Lupton, who's a good player, and he played with Gary Walsenholm. 
mm-hmm. in the foursomes. And I would say this to Gary now because he would laugh. Anyway, they played in the morning and they were they were struggling a little bit. And Gary was very very proud of his like of his record in uh, you know for for GBNI and and for England. And he was a you know very decorated amateur golfer, and he was very very straight. And John Lupton was hit the ball a long way, but wasn't always the straightest. Good short game, whatever. Anyway, so they get to like 17. And and John, we finished. You know, I was in a couple of hours with John asked me to get to 17. And we were the last match. So a bunch of, they were playing against Scotland. And a bunch of the crowd came back out, came back out to watch their, their match finish. And he said, anyway, so Gary Hitman the fairway. And then John then pulled his five iron left into the trees. Like a terrible shot that I would get hurt. And he said, look across at Gary. And Gary went... I'm so glad you've hit that shot. Now everybody will know it's your fault that we've lost this match. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Which is, you know, but that's the team element. You know, you guess you've got the different characters for different reasons and you've got to like manage those guys the way they are, but that that kind of fits. We're not saying that Brooks Kepka turned to Scottish Sheffield and went, this is your fault. But I just don't, I feel like there's a little bit more of an element of like, which is why they're great at singles, because they know that, okay, this is my time to shine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you look at their record in singles and it's it's far better than Europe's, right? Um, you know, Europe's is built on on kind of the, 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 the other sessions. You know, obviously we think about all the great singles players we've had, but it's kind of only a handful, isn't it? You know, you look at some of their records, it's absolutely ridiculous. But, I, you know, you kind of look at this and if there is anybody that exemplifies what it's all about is Rory McIlroy. And I know that's the most cliche thing and obvious thing. And you're probably going, yeah, nice one. This guest's good on the first tee podcast. He's telling <laughs> us what we already, already know. But I, I think, I think you know, by name, obviously it's an exhibition. There's no money, no ranking points. We know all that about the Ryder Cup. But anybody who's been in it or around it or experienced it, they know that it is players chasing this kind of lifelong ambition because it's out of the simple constraints of it being an exhibition and a match of goodwill. There's so much more than that. And I mm. think that McElroy represents getting both the individual element right and being ruthless. You know, all right, he should have won way more than he has in terms of majors and PGA Tour events, etc. And it's going to be 10 years since he won his last major. Um, when we move into January, you know, it's going to be I think 2014 was his last one. But you look at the top five finishes he's had and uh, we're going to remember Roy McIlroy is a great player. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think that that is in doubt whatsoever. However, he will also go down as a great Ryder Cup player. And there's a difference because Tiger Woods, the greatest golfer of all time, won't be remembered as a great Ryder Cup player because he wasn't. If you if you didn't if you didn't know anything about golf and all you did was watch Ryder Cup films, you wouldn't pick Tiger out as being one of the great one of the greats of the game, would you? And same with Phil Mickelson. So the fact that McElroy can probably count himself as doing both is is remarkable, and he is going to be leading that European team. I mean, hopefully for another ten or fifteen years um, from a European's perspective. But um, I think even when he's done, you know, he'll still have that incredible, you know, he's going to have a great record, obviously, and he's going to have that incredible inspiration um, to, to anybody who's coming into that team room in the future, isn't he? Because he just gets it and he he knows what the balance is and he knows how to tackle it. And that is yeah. something that the Americans just do not have. You can talk about Justin Thomas as being their equivalent of Ari and Poulter, but he's not. On, he's- on Rory McIlroy, I, I know a point that... Um, well, I think we'd be remiss to touch on was that moment on Saturday afternoon with Joe LaCava. Where were you at that point, James? And like we've seen it on social media, we've seen 
it looks like that he was, you know, kind of affecting a, another golfer being Roy McIlroy before he was about to perform and uh, kind of in his space. What did, we've seen clips, but you know, you you kind of get, you know, is that a camera angle or did something happen before or after that we didn't see? We get the full story. Where were you? Were you there? Can you shed any light on that situation? So I was commentating on their match and. Obviously, when it's all going on, I'm stood right next to the 18th green. So I had a really good view of all the putts and everything like that. And obviously, when can play holes, and I've got to say, I actually what? quite enjoy... I, I, and, and what a moment, right? And to, he's birdied 16, 17, and 18. He held that little slippery putt on 17 and, and then buries that on 18 after being out of position off the tee as well. You love, you love a bit of Patty Ice. When we've done the commentator of Eurosport, it's always like Patrick Cantlay. We've done a couple of events that he's in <laughs> commentator on where he's actually won, right? Yeah, we have actually. Patty yeah. Ice is what he calls him. Yeah, yeah. Patty Ice. Yeah, yeah. The Ice Man. I mean, he's earned that nickname, but I'll be honest. I'll be honest with you. I'm not a massive fan of, of him as a human being. I don't think he's particularly overly offensive, but I, I don't think he's. I don't. I, I don't go. I can't wait to watch Patrick Cantlay tonight for the next three hours <laughs> yeah. whilst commentating. You're not stopping. Patrick Cantlay is not yeah. James Gregg's favourite golfer in the world. He's not. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's not moving the needle, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we've got that out there. <laughs> so I was enjoying the cap, the cap swirling, and because whether whether there was any truth behind, you know, the, the cap protest or not, which you know you can make of that what you will. I don't know if it was or not, but the European fans were really clever with that word had spread. They're knowledgeable. They're obviously on the phones. They've obviously read about it, and then wittily and hilariously, they've come up with this whirling the cap around the head. Caps off for the bank account was the chant. Brilliant. So we're enjoying it. And and actually, <laughs> fair play to Patrick Cantley because he holds that putt, like we mentioned, 16-17 as well. And it meant that either McElroy or Fitzpatrick had to hold to hold the match. And they were obviously, all the American players back of the green, they were all whizzing their caps around their head. And I thought that was great because if it was the other way, right, if the shoe was on the other foot, we'd be going, that is awesome. Hey, sticking it to them. They've been doing it to him all the way, all the all day long. We're going to give it some back. And actually, it was quite good natured. I didn't feel like there was any malice behind that. Apart from when Joe LaCarba was doing it. And what's he doing? The guy's 68 years old. He used to caddy for <laughs> Robbie's hero, Freddie Couples. And, you know, and Tiger, obviously. You know, for goodness sake, this guy's like an experienced stalwart of a caddy. Um, he's done loads of Ryder Cups, not as many as Billy Foster, I don't think, but not far off. And he's there, whizzing his cap around. And caddies, Zane, you'll, you'll agree with me here, caddies are meant to be not invisible because they're human beings and they're incredibly important parts of, of a golfer's success. But you're meant to kind of keep yourself out of out of it. You don't get involved in rulings. You don't get involved in altercations or interactions. So what was he doing? Stood next to McElroy, whizzing his cap around his head on the 18th green. I mean, he just got swept up in it. He got Ryder Cup itis like the rest of us. And I can kind of forgive that a little bit. But this guy's 68. Like, what? He, what? It just looked like he was standing a bit close to him. He was. You know, we know how big greens are. He could do that. If he, did, if he was on the edge of the green doing it, you'd be like, you know, fair play. It's a bit of fun. But he just seemed to be like walking towards him a little bit in his face and then when McElroy was, you know, trying to get to his putt to then have to make, then he obviously said to him, look, can you get out of my way? And then, then he was kind of like, as Rory was walking back to his putt, he kind of followed him a little bit like, you know, mm. like a, I mean, like a... But, like but a, I think, I think, look, I was quite, I was close enough to basically tell Rory to tell him to 
get lost off the green. And then you could see John Rahm on the far corner, basically beckoning him over, saying, come over, just get off the green. get off." The-. But John Rahm wasn't doing it in like a, come on, you muppet, yeah. do it. That he was, It was almost like, just come on, just get off the green, let Rory put. And I yeah. think that then annoyed him even more, Joe LaCarva. Um, obviously, the match finishes, the Europeans straight off the green, straight into the clubhouse. We didn't see any of them. We were trying to get a bit of kind of reaction, nothing. Um, Donald had basically, apparently, we found this out after Donald apparently was stood there and he just said, everyone go. Nothing's gonna, Nothing good is going to come of this. Get off, which I think is quite, again, astute captaincy. The Americans all stayed on the green. It's almost like they'd won, won the Ryder Cup or they were leading or they'd taken the lead. You know, the way that they were celebrating, which I thought was, again, totally bizarre. But even after the Europeans had gone and some of the, you know, the, the European fans were still there, sort of, you know, taunting the Americans, they were doing it back. And that was a bit odd. So there was obviously a bit of needle, a bit of spice, which is good. It added to the contest come Sunday morning. But in terms of the car park altercation, it was, uh, I think Joe LaCarver made a comment at Rory once again. I mean, why? Like, you, you're clearly in the wrong. Um, Rory was about to get in a, in, in a player's car just to go back to the hotel. And, um, and yeah, and then it all started kicking off just as everybody was coming out of the clubhouse ready to go home. I, I, apparently, a couple of hours after, LaCarver did reach out to um, the McElroy camp or... Um, I think a couple of couple of the of the European caddies to apologise, and that was duly accepted. And by Sunday morning, everybody was arriving at the golf course, going, "I think this is, you know, this is going to be a thing." And and it wasn't rather disappointing that you know, I was stood by the putting green waiting for any any kind of little awkward moments, <laughs> and there was nothing. And I thought, oh, "This is, you know, if if, if you didn't know it had happened, you wouldn't be able to tell." So th- there you go. A little bit like the the Elon Musk Mark Zuckerberg cage fight that was was going to happen, but but never quite got off the ground. You know, uh, we were, <laughs> it, yeah, it just never quite, it never quite ascended to the uh, to, to the to the to the showdown that we were all hoping for. Um, but I tell you what, it would obviously have driven Rory more than even he would have already been in that situation. I mean, if there was ever a banker win in the singles, it was Rory against Sam Burns in that singles because. You know, that was a man on a mission, if ever there was one. I got to ask James on that note, and we're now reading that he wasn't wearing a hat because he was getting married today. So I have mm. no idea what, what the hat or the hatless appearance was really down to. But the, the idea, this, this notion that the players should be paid for the Ryder Cup, for, for, paying, for playing in the Ryder Cup, um, what's your thoughts on it? I mean, it's clearly an event that generates a heck of a lot of money for both the DP World Tour and the PGA of America. Um, is it right that the players could expect to be paid even a nominal amount to play? Not the crazy amounts that they earn on tour, but what, what's your position on that going forward? I think if they are not getting a fair slice of the pie, then perhaps. But equally, we all know how much money they've got because you can... Google their career earnings and then you just kind of add, you know, you almost double that and it's, well, there you go. That's how much money they've got. That sort of stuff doesn't really bother me that much, but I know for a lot of people it, it does. Um, and, and actually you kind of look at all the endorsements you get back off being a five-time Ryder Cup player, for example, you know, you might not get paid directly. You're not going to get a check. I mean, they do get a bit of a check, by the way. You get £5,000 plus expenses. All right, £5,000 isn't, you know, it's not a lot of money to those players who are earning £10 million plus in a season, particularly the top PGA Tour players. But, you know, it, 
it, it's a week you're you're away representing USA or Europe in the biggest competition in golf. It's a biennial contest. You are lucky to be there. You've earned your way to be there, but it's it's an incredibly fortunate position to be in. You don't get to experience anything else like that. You can have your wives, your kids, your whoever, you know, your, your trainers out there. You get all your custom-fitted clothes. You're doing all these cool little experiences and gala dinners and all that kind of stuff. You're staying in the best of the best hotels. You know, I think the European team was staying in the Waldorf Astoria in the centre of Rome, right near the Spanish steps, for goodness sake. So it's a great experience, you know, and they've all got girlfriends and wives with them and, and it, it's it's a really nice week. And it's one week of the year. So why should they get, you know, 100,000 or whatever they would think is an acceptable I'm not sure one. what happens in Europe, but I know, but I was reading today that in on the PGA Tour, 23% of the profits made from the Ryder Cup go back into the pension fund, which is for the players. So like, well, there you go. A check, right? To that, you know, I'm not sure what the European side, but from the US side, is that yeah, they're not getting a paid check like they do normally, but they're still, you know, in the grand, in the bigger picture, you know, they're still benefiting from this financially. They are, of course, is, they are. That's important. Maybe, maybe it could be uh, some some kind of you know, system whereby the players get to have some kind of say in how the money is fed back into the grassroots for the game. Um, I think mm-hmm. they get, they get like, I think it was also read they get something like a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars which they could nominate to a charity. Yes, they this do. PJ tour side. Yeah, that's, that's true. So the PGA of America do that. Um, and I think the PGA tour, they, it's also written into their contract so a PGA Tour player, so Brooks Kepka, we'll come on to that in a second, what what happened with Kepka, but PGA Tour players written into their contract, if they make the Ryder Cup team, obviously the PGA Tour don't run the US Ryder Cup team, it's the PGA of America. A little bit confusing, but two separate bodies. So the PGA of America run the US PGA Championship and lots of other different you know professional golf association events, basically, but the PGA Tour is just the tour. So there is a bonus for PGA Tour players from the tour, for making the Ryder Cup team, because obviously it's good for the tour. This issue, though, rose arose just completely because you have Bryson, DeChambeau, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka, and a few of the other live guys who had written into their contract, uh, their live contract. If you make that Ryder Cup team, we'll give you a big bonus. I think Kepka's is rumored to be about 300,000. Mm-hmm. So... So obviously it's a nice incentive if you could make the Ryder Cup team. And obviously that's good. You can see why Liv would incentivize players with that kind of bonus because how good does it look for them if they're getting golfers into the US Ryder Cup side? Like it's it's a great showcase. It's, hey, look, you know, this isn't all the things that people are saying about us as a tour. These guys are still competitive and they can still very much do it. So for the fact that Kepka not only won a major this year, but then, you know, qualified for the Ryder Cup team is is a, a great thing for Lip. So obviously he was numerically rewarded from his tour for that. And I think that that is why the problem became, you know, so apparent because Cantlay and others, Chauflay uh, and you suspect the likes of Homer, Fowler, Burns, who were all photographed with Brooks Kepka last night wearing the Smash Golf Club t-shirts. <laughs> smash is t-shirts. It's a completely different issue, which we won't go into, I don't think. <laughs> if you if you look at that, I can kind of see why they're going, hang on, why is, well, Brooks Kepka has got 300 grand for qualifying for the Ryder Cup. What have we got? 
5,000 and a bit of money to donate to charity, really. So I can kind of see it. But then equally, you know, these guys, their career earnings are all over $15 million. So I've, I don't, I'm not really getting the violins out for them at the same time, Robbie. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, that, that is a fair summary. Uh, and I, look, I don't expect anything to change on that front. And, and, you know, I think we're all kind of in the boat of nor should it, really. I guess when we look at what might change, it seemed like Zach was, you know, in fairness to him, uh, it was very, as he kept repeating, fresh and raw. He used those two words together in a sentence many times uh, in the aftermath of the event. And he, he did seem pretty emotional about it. So it's, it's, it's very unfair to expect a thorough analysis of what went wrong in the immediate aftermath of, of a, a pretty emotional defeat like that. But there was a degree of denial in some of the statements made by Zach Johnson. He said he had no regrets. He said he wouldn't do anything differently. He said that essentially they just got outplayed. They got outputted. They got outchipped. The Europeans just hit better shots. And hey, you know what to do. You shrug your shoulders. We lost to the better team. We move on. And of course, there's an element of that. Uh, but I wonder, 2014 inspired by Phil Mickelson's little outburst in the press conference, throwing Tom Watson under the bus, led to the task force being set up, which led to the Americans adopting as a template a lot of what Europe were already doing. I wonder whether the Americans will look at what they can do to win. On I think, look, they're very heavy favourites to win at Bethpage. And, and if, if I had a gun to my head now, I'd say they will win at Bethpage because I'm also aware of how difficult it is for the European team to go. I don't think Bob McIntyre, for example, is going to Bethpage and winning two and a half points for the European no. team. You know, it's just very, it's that much more difficult on that court and on that kind of setup in in that kind of atmosphere. But, you know, when you look at Adair Manor in four years' time, Will the Americans have really taken any of this to heart or will it just be a plug and play, you know, rinse and repeat for as far as they're concerned? There's a lot going on, though, isn't there? You know, I mean, we don't even know what the PGA Tour schedule looks like properly for next year, you know, with the live HIF agreement to come. So we don't know really what players they're going to have to pick from. We don't even know what the qualifying process or, um, you know, selection policy is going to be. Um we don't know if the PGA of America are going to be welcoming in the live golfers. I know that obviously Kepka got a captain's pick, but he couldn't not because I think that would have discredited Zach Johnson even more from, you know, what was in the end a really poor captaincy. But it is, it's, look, you know, I, I've made excuses for all the away teams in the last few editions and, you know, saying actually, you know, Europe in Western Straits, X, Y, and Z, you can make a case for Paris being incredibly difficult for the Americans and actually a very good European team. You go back to Hazeltine, Darren Clark, really poor captain and a popular guy, but poor captain, poor selections, poor pairings. Um, you know, picked his mates, didn't he, for that? He picked Lee Westwood, who just should never have got a pick in a million years, really, for that particular Ryder Cup. So actually, there's like, there's so many different things that have gone wrong. I think it's more, it's not a coincidence, but it, it, I think actually this, the, the away team, for whatever reason, has always had a bit more up against them than they perhaps should have in recent recent editions. So it's difficult to really see too far ahead because the Americans might have an amazingly strong team. They might still have Cantlay, Chauflay. You might have a Justin Thomas who's a bit more on song. Speak was really poor this week. So you could have a, you know, a speak back to his kind of best. So instantly then you've got a really good spine of a team. On the flip side of that, those guys could have gone to live um, because they're annoyed with the PJ of America and not getting paid. And 
then they could have, you know, the PGA Tour and PIF could have not reached an agreement and therefore they're not getting any world ranking points and therefore they don't play in the Ryder Cup. So we don't know. You know, it's, it's such a difficult one to call. Um, you, know, like, you know how uh, how it was quite clear, you know, we chatted earlier about preparation. Mm-hmm. You can go into an away Ryder Cup, which I think is probably going to be more difficult. It seems, it seems to be more difficult for the American players as it does the Europeans, that they need to almost give the preparation more respect to go over earlier, do more. Like, because you could say that, okay, yeah, but it's on away soil. So, you know, obviously each one of these players' times are very important to them. So to get them to come over early is difficult and so forth. But then it's not as if John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Victor Hovland don't all play in the PGA Tour. Yeah, they all made the effort to like come over and prepare for a home mm-hmm. Ryder Cup. And because it, it seems like the small wins, like just come and play you know, I'm pretty sure the DP World Tour are going to, with open arms, welcome any, you know, US uh, tour player to come and play in any of their events pre or Ryder Cup. It 100%. Just seems like a few extra days. Like, you know, at the end of the day, as good a golf as they are, they're still human beings. They still get jet lag. Uh, you may not want to go to the venue for, you know, 10 days previous, but be in the time zone for like, let's, let's, let's try and get in the time zone three days earlier than what we did last time around. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. But in t- but by four by the time a dare man comes around, has this all been forgotten about? Different captain, different players, so forth. You know, will this be remembered? All these small details. It seems like they'll be like, now nah, we're good enough, and we'll just go again. Uh, yeah. there, there seems to be James. Got to get your thoughts on this. A bit more continuity in the European vice-captain and captain kind of conveyor belt, if you like. And and bearing in mind that Europe have lost the three arguably most important players of their most successful era in the Ryder Cup to Mm. live golf and therefore have not got options to select them as captains. That being said, you know, I know he wasn't a a famous Ryder Cup player, but the presence of of Colsarts, um, on that vice-captain squad. Eduardo Molinari on that vice-captain team. These are younger players who are slightly more in touch with the current generation, the current crop of players. And it sort of all feeds up in terms of seniority where you've got some really senior guys like Alathabal who's got so much respect. You've got Thomas Bjorn in there. You know, you have Luke Donald as the captain. Uh, whereas if you look at the Americans, it's just a bunch of kind of old guys now it's it's a bit it's a bit of an old boys club. I, I don't want to be disrespectful, but Stuart Sink, Jim Furyk, Zach Johnson, uh, Freddie Couples. There is no continuity. There, there's no. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think now of a sort of 42, 43, 45 year old American golfer who might be in that bracket, who might sort of fit the mold there. But it feels like that they haven't really refreshed. Their their backroom team in the same way as effectively as Europe have. I agree. Yeah, actually, I totally agree with that. Um, I th- I'd not really thought about the kind of little steps up in ages and and eras of the vice cap. I mean, look, Lathabau is always going to be great for a team room, isn't he? Um, obviously, you know, Sevi's partner for goodness sake you know this guy is amazing obviously at the helm for Medina as well you know he's just always going to be a great presence in that team room but you're absolutely right you know Ben Crenshaw walking around um, but like he was sort of driving around on a buggy with his wife and he, I didn't see him speak to a player once you know and you but think you don't need uh, one of Lazabelle's great but you don't need six Lazabelle's do you? which essentially is what no exactly which is what the they're trying test. to do 
Yeah, exactly. You're right. It's an all-star captaincy. It's kind of, it's it's the Galacticos on the American side. The pressure from the the guy on the globe, thinking, actually, this guy's probably better than me. And he's saying that with his arms folded, you know, as a a player, you would feel, you would feel a little bit judged by something. You know, that from a player's point of view, if the assistant captains are so good, you would feel a little bit judged, like, am I doing the right thing? These guys are legends of their past, like, and you're hitting a shot thinking you might hit a bad shot in practice and thinking, oh, you know, is he thinking that I shouldn't be playing tomorrow? You know, these are not, these are kind of small things which probably do play into the ego a little bit. Well, like Francesco is obviously still a current PGA Tour player. Um, I know he struggled a little bit, but, you know, he's still a PGA Tour player. And, and Cole Sartz, although not still at the top of his game, still you know, youngish. Been injured, hasn't he? And he's been out for a bit. Exactly. So, but like, he's not, he's not like an iconic, legendary figure. Yeah. But he's, um, he, he, he was, he... he was great. He was a great vice captain. I mean, look, I don't know what he says exactly to the players, but he was brilliant. And all the players, every time he sort of came to a tee box or a green, the guys seemed really pleased to see him, you know, they were kind of giving him a little pat on the back. And, you know, he was, he was, he seemed really invested and involved. Right. His, his nickname the dude, which kind of tells you everything, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he is a bit of a dude. But imagine having, um, as a European player, having Nick Faldo as a vice captain. Like, I know Nick, and I, I, you know, having grown up with him, you'd feel under pressure as a player, thinking, God, he's judging everything I'm doing here. Yeah. And you'd feel really conscious about yourself, as opposed to, there was a little piece on social media of Nicholas Colsarts and Rory on the range. And the, and Nick is just like, why are you wearing shorts? Yeah. You know, it was just, that's a different conversation. Of course it Nicholas is. Nicholas yeah. Colsarts saying that to you rather than, if Nick Fowler said that to you, you'd probably, he'd walk away and you'd think, oh. Yeah, maybe, maybe I should go and put some shorts on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally bizarre. But I think, look, the, the, the one point as well that I, I noticed yesterday during the presentation, I'm not sure if you guys saw this on the TV, but they were when they were handing the cup over to the Europeans. All the European players started chanting two more years to Luke Donald, mm. and, oh, and really? yeah, and that was that was really what? cool. And then obviously the rest of the grandstand because they were doing it on the first tee, the presentation they all started singing it, and you could see Donald, and he was it, it was it, the look on his face wasn't the look of somebody like oh no I'm not doing that. It was very much a yeah I've already decided that that's the case. You know it was almost like yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, we he, know that. He, he didn't he didn't knock it back when asked about it. I mean, that was interesting because I think uh, I think Thomas was asked in 2018, would you consider it again? And it was kind of a flat no. It was like, yeah. look, you, you, you give so much of your life to this job that, you know, when you've won, you, you, you count your blessings and you move on and you can retire as a as a winning Ryder Cup captain. So I think. Luke being up for that challenge is very interesting. And I think that says a lot about maybe where he feels he is in his career as a golfer as well, having mm. achieved all he did 10 years ago and now where he's at now in, in terms of his actual playing career. The fact that he would relish the chance to be a back-to-back winning captain. And, and I think it was Bernard Gallagher who was the last back-to-back captain for Europe. You've got to go way back, yeah. way back to the to mm-hmm. the 80s for, for a back-to-back captain for Team Europe. Um, so, okay, we don't know about Luke Donald. I got to ask you though, who is captaining that US team at Bethpage? I know <laughs> Tiger is a name that continually crops up. Does Tiger get sucked into this whole Ryder Cup circus, or you know, do they give it for a third time to Davis Love? Do they do they let Zach Johnson have another bite of the cherry? I mean, what is the US team 
going to be doing in two years in New York when it comes to captains? Davis Love the third for the third time. Um, <laughs> Davis Love the literal third. <laughs> Davis the literal third. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, you know what? There's no name that really springs to mind. Your natural, you, you take live out of the equation. And if you'd have asked somebody 10 years ago who will be the Ryder Cup captain um, at Bethpage Black... You'd have gone Phil Mickelson, wouldn't you? Because yeah. he's going to be—he's going to be what fifty-three. Um, so you'd have said you'd have said Phil Mickelson. I mean, it's so difficult to say. I mean, it's obviously not going to be Phil now, or it could be Phil. Who knows? Well, you know, like a lot of things that feels all those things that you go back across it. You know, feels that he actually pushed things in a certain way. You think oh, annoyingly, he's had to come true what he said. Yeah, you know, in a, not necessarily the journey that they probably should have gone, but you know. Yeah, and like yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the bones he had to pick with the PGA Tour and the PGA of America, etc., were, you know, perhaps in hindsight fair. I don't know, you know, I don't know about all that stuff. I think but the last Ryder Cup and you know, kind of he, he had his he had his say, didn't he, at Glen Eagles in that press conference afterwards? Yeah, you know, that would he probably you know pulled up some points there and made a lot of people feel, feel very uncomfortable. But I think they, so. They improved after that. I mean, who, who, I mean, Ryder Cup captain. I'm just trying to think. You know, if you're looking at the traditional blueprint of, you know, between kind of 42 and 50-something, um, obviously played the Ryder Cup themselves. I, I, there's nobody really that that springs to mind. I mean, somebody like Webb Simpson, but that's mm. he wasn't exactly a Ryder Cup stalwart. I mean, look, it, it's... I, I've got no idea. I have you've... to admit, I have to hold my hands up here, James. I couldn't tell you Zach Johnson's Ryder Cup record as a player. To be quite he was pretty honest. good, Hand, handy. He was difficult, difficult to beat. I think he won all of his singles matches. Actually, really, really, yeah, that so... surprised me. Exactly, yeah, and two-time major winner. Like, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? He, yeah, exactly. He would command enough respect. Who would you go player. for, Zane? Who, I'm trying to think. I'm, I, I really can't think of any of any names. I'm getting the yeah, feeling, guys, really... that you don't think Tiger would be up for it. I, I don't know actually. I think, I think he would. I think he would because I think you know, in 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 the states, it tends to be a, a lot of you know ex um, major winners. You know, if you're a major winner in any tour and you've you know been on the tour for a long enough time, it seems like you kind of get your go at being a Ryder Cup captain. Maybe we're just in an era of of the Tiger Woods era with all the people in that. You know, kind of age category where they're supposed to win majors. He mopped them all up, so then we've not really got many major winners from that era who are who are American. That's what it seems to be. As you're saying, like you, know, you guys, are, you know, between the three of us, I would say not many people watch or would be involved or invested in professional golf as much as us. I mean, no. James Gregg definitely watches more PJ Tour than any other person in the world. <laughs> he does it every week on on Discovery plus Eurosport commentating every pretty much every shot. And for us to be for us three to be stumped on who would be a natural captain, we should be able to come up with three different names. And as you're saying, Robbie, like they've only got Tiger to turn to now. And and, and I think maybe they're worrying because they think if Tiger can't do it, then they they've got nothing. It's back to Davis. Uh, uh, well or Stuart Sink. I mean again I just, I think, I think that it will be somebody like that though. That's the that's the daft thing. It will be end up being somebody like a Stuart Sink. It just will. 
I can't believe I'm even saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he... Uh, Maybe it'd yeah. be Joe LaCarba. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be interesting. It's going to be really, really interesting. And I think, isn't it amazing how one thing that is for sure, when whistling straights in the immediate aftermath of that absolute rollicking, that absolute pasting that the Americans gave the Europeans... We were basically consigning the Ryder Cup to the dustbin. We were, sent, we were essentially all saying, if I recall correctly, the Americans are going to win this thing nine times in a row. <laughs> you know, it's going to be, they're looking unbelievably strong and Europe are suddenly, all of a sudden, with their golden generation going over the hill, they're suddenly looking incredibly threadbare and, and lacking in, in, in any real depth. Uh, and now, of course, two years later... It's, a, it's flipped on its head, uh, and we're, we're now talking about a European success at Bethpage, which, which two years ago would have seemed fanciful in the extreme, and, and that's great. And that's, I guess, for the Ryder Cup, that's brilliant because it, it, it creates that narrative that just continues, and there's so much intrigue surrounding it. But I will ask you this question of the European players, and look, no doubt the big guns, the big three, McElroy, Rahm, and Hovland just delivered in spades and, and we needed them to and they did it. But you've got to tip your hat to, to Robert McIntyre. Aberg played his part as a rookie who's never played a major, partnering with, with, with Hovland for that nine and seven, that historic win. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of slightly more unsung heroes on that European team who really did come to the fore as well. But which of those perhaps younger players makes it to the Beth page in two years. Do we see Bob McIntyre? Do we see Nikolai Hoygaard, Aberg on the team in two years' time? It's tr- Look, it's tricky, isn't it? Let's have a little look. Let's, let's work through it. I think Bob McIntyre is one of those players who might not necessarily make every team for the next 12 years or however long, but he'll definitely play a couple more Ryder Cups, you'd say. You know, he's still in his 20s. He's probably going to play, you'd say, at least a couple more. Maybe not everyone. He seems like a guy who probably needs a little bit of thought. I mean, look, this guy got a pick. Sorry, he qualified basically because he finished second behind Rory at the Scottish Open, mm. um, which was a, obviously a big event, co-sanctioned event. And then he'd won the Italian Open, which was on the same golf course and therefore was slightly boosted again, again, a Rolex series event on the DP World Tour. So he'd had... Two really strong finishes, not a great deal else, really, in terms of form. So you don't know. You know, if it, you take away those finishes and he's not qualifying or getting a pick, is he? Despite actually his decent showing. Uh, Fleetwood's always going to be there. Lowry's, you know, likely going to be there. I know he needed a pick this time. but it'll, it'll, I think he's one of those. He's almost turned into a polter. Like, you won't be able to ignore him. Hoygaard, difficult to see him making a, a string of them. Except Stracker, likewise, despite the fact that he's actually got a lot more pedigree than people give him credit for, a two-time winner now on the PGA Tour. In in terms of Ludwig, yeah, he's going to be a stud, isn't he? He's going to be there every every single Ryder Cup for the next... He's going to play eight in a row or something, isn't he? He's going to be a legend of it, from what we've seen. Um, Tyrrell, yes, great, consistent. He's going to start winning, I think, at some point on the PGA Tour. Knocks on the door all season long. Fitz... Major champion. Rory, yes, obviously. Justin Rose, no. Sorry, he was great this Ryder Cup, but, you know, he's going to 
struggle to maintain that level of consistency needed to qualify. And I just don't see a 44-year-old Justin Rose getting a pick or 45 or whatever it'll be. Mm. Uh, and then Hovland and Rahm, obviously, yeah. So it, it, there's probably only two or three uh, changes that you'll see to that team, which is again, really helps in terms of forward planning and, and trying to sort of galvanize 12 people who are going to go to Beth Page Black and tame the New York crowd and tame the golf course and ultimately retain or win the win the Ryder Cup. So it's um, it's really difficult. And then there is an emergence of talent. I can't believe that Moronk missed out still, but we won't go into that now. You know, now that it's settled. But somebody like a Moronk, um, if he turns into the player that he's looking like turning into over the next couple of years, he, he's going to be a, a perfect kind of like for like for somebody like a Nikolai Hoygaard. So it's 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 good that there is now a spine that you can point towards of certainly eight players um, because that's ultimately where success comes from, isn't it? Having a spine of, of players who've won the Ryder Cup, who've done it, who've partnered each other. You know, the Rory Fleetwood thing's a good little pairing and da-da-da-da. You know, that, that's what you need, right? You need a core group. You need obvious four-ball teams and foursomes teams. You need That's what you need. And I think that Europe do have that. So that's that's not to be overlooked either. Yeah, and it's going to be fascinating how, as you say, the dust settles on on the kind of politics of the game and the the ecosystem of the game. And and I'm sure, given what's happened in the last twelve months, James, I'm sure that the the landscape is going to change a heck of a lot, as you alluded to, in the next twenty four months in terms of eligibility. Uh, you know, just in ch- in terms of the golfers kind of ability to represent their countries in this event, um, I'm sure we're going to see a lot of twists and turns in, in that narrative. And, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully everyone's getting on and, you know, there are no issues surrounding the Ryder Cup. Because That's what we all hope, isn't it? That is what we hope, genuinely. You know, I, we don't. Uh, this is the thing. Like, remember when all the live stuff was happening last year? Zane and I were working together on PGA Tour commentary, and like one week we're commentating on one player, and then the next week he's gone. And, um, and then there's murmurs about Hideki Matsuyama, and now he's not involved in the Ryder Cup or whatever. But I'm just thinking, can we all? And I wasn't bothered per se about you know all the stuff that people were bothered about with live. It was just that I didn't like it, like the the the. 12 year old boy in me was like why can't all i just watch all my go- all the all the golfers mm. why can't they all just turn up at riviera why can't they all just play at sawgrass why can't they all just be there it's all in one place that's yeah. what we want. that's what's just, so great about what we just saw we've got all the best players exactly playing the same course attacking that 16th hole mm. that's what that's what we want to see uh, oh that you know that is where the moments are made whenever exactly. i watch the Ryder cup I always have this thought of why can't golf be like this every week? <laughs> it's really, it's a bit like what, you know, the World Cup in football. You're like, ah, okay, back to back to that then. Um, but I think golf can get to a place where it, it is able to generate more drama week in, week out. And at the moment, it's the landscape is fragmented and, and uh, you know, the, the issues need to be resolved and I'm, I'm sure they will be. But it just kind of, when you see it condensed and distilled into that arena, it is the greatest sport, and and it just sort of it just underlines why I suppose there's so many vested interests in in the kind of health of the, the professional sport moving forward. When you realise when you watch that week in Rome and and how great it can be, yeah, I mean, I mean, the fact that you've got people who don't like golf week to week 
They don't, mm. They're not going to be watching the Sanderson Farms this week, for example. No. <laughs> no. You know, that, that, the people, that, that sort of audience who won't even know what the Sanderson Farms is, for example, that's when you know that it's cutting through. That's when you know that you're onto something special. Um, and it's just, it's so gripping, isn't it? And these guys, that I don't think the, the golfers realise this. They realise that in a golf sphere, they are, you know, the very best of the best. But they don't know that everybody on my road here in London where I live will know the names of most of these Ryder Cup team. Mm. And that's bonkers. You don't get that in golf. You don't. Um, you know, they're not going to be able to tell you who Brian Harmon was until he played in the Ryder Cup, but then they might because they go, oh, it's the little guy. He's the little left-handed guy, isn't it? Yeah. It's the guy that has a, a, a million ticks before he hits the ball. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, th- but that's it. You get all these names, you know, and I've got mates of mine who are casual, casual golf fans who will throw out names like, you know, JJ Henry and Boo Weekly at me. And I'm like, and I'm saying, how do you know? How do you remember that? And they're going, I just remember, you know, Ryder Cup 2006. You've just named two of the potential future US captains there. (laughs) There he goes. There he goes. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Uh, Boo Weekly would be a great captain. (laughs) Yeah, here we go. Oh, listen, right. I I appreciate I've kept you boys a long time. It was, we needed to give this a a thorough debrief. And I I really Mm. appreciate you sparing the time. I will. This is a very American question of of mine, um, but I will ask you for your MVP. Um, And and I'm assuming, of course, you're going to name a European because they are on the winning side. But who do you give that, that accolade to? We've talked a lot about the performances of the big players. Who was, you were there, James, who was the MVP for you this week? I think, it, you know, I, I don't want to go obvious and say Rory McIlroy, although it's very, very close. But I think John Rahm. I think John Rahm led from the front. That first match on Friday morning was so important. Um, he looks steely. He looks like nothing bothers him. And then to have that incredible ding-dong match, first out on Sunday with Scotty Scheffler, um, just kind of proved his worth to Team Europe. So, yeah, for me, John Rahm. Zane? Just to mix it up, really, from what James said there, I think the form that he's on at the moment, being Victor Hobland, just you knew, you just he's he's that guy right now. Like even even with Rory, you might get a great Rory, you might get a miss Rory, but Victor Hobland at the moment he does does have it in him. You know you can you know exactly what you're going to get. You're going to get knowing how to handle every different position. You know you're going to get good driving. He's going to be in play. He's going to be, you know, maybe half of the play against. We know he can part under pressure. And just loving this, like, going from him saying publicly, I suck at chipping, to chipping it in from a tight light on the first hole of a Ryder Cup. Like, he's just that guy right now, isn't he? He's the, he's the one. And he's there, you know, not got not got a missus with him or nothing like that. He's, you know, he's kind of, you know, he's the guy in the picture of all the other wives. I just think uh, Victor Hovland, we just going in, you like, you know that he's going to play well. You know you're going to get loads out of him. And then he did exactly that. Like, there's nothing more you can ask for. What about you, Robbie? Yeah, uh, on, on, on Hovland, I think if there was one bet I would be willing to make it for next year is that Victor Hovland is going to win a major in 2024. If that man mm. is not due, I don't know who is. But I will, uh, I will follow suit in avoiding the obvious pick of Rory McIlroy. Um, you know, I think, have to say Tyrrell did very well, very, very well in a tough singles match yeah. as well. But I have to say that the real unsung hero, you know, 
what was he? He was Mollywood. He was one half of Mollywood in in in, in France. Yeah. He just quietly accumulated three out of four points, three points from four matches, and he hit that clutch drive on 16. And yeah, Tommy, I mean, he is, he really embodies a lot of what I think the Ryder Cup stands for from a European perspective. And, he, uh, you know, no one buys into it as much as he does. And, and uh, he does seem to lift his game. He seems to play with an intensity that, that I don't, I haven't seen him replicate in major championships just yet and I really hope Tommy goes on and wins a major first major because he's definitely got the talent and the ability um, but he seems to be able to harness a, a kind of self-belief in the Ryder Cup that that maybe hasn't quite sort of transferred into his into his major championship game just yet but what a player what a performance from him and uh, you know I think um, he's my unsung MVP for sure Tommy Fleetwood I thought he was brilliant and you have to say, I mean, basically, the, the European team, to a man, were phenomenal. They were. I thought you were going to go Bob McIntyre. Uh, I, I, I was tempted. Week. I was tempted to go Bob. <laughs> and yeah, I will. I will remind everyone listening that that I did. <laughs> I did pick Bob to be my 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 best rookie, um, and he did. He, he came through. He came through. Did Bob? Uh, he did the business. Uh, massive congratulations to Team Europe. Obviously, great news that I'm sure we'll see many of them over in this part of town for the DP World Tour Championship in November. Uh, lo- lovely to get a lot of them competing for that DP World Tour Championship and race to Dubai Trophy as well. And, and uh, they will just be riding a crest of the wave um, until the end of this of this particular season. But James, listen, um, we really thank you for jumping on this podcast and, and uh, sharing your extensive insights and, and experiences from, from Rome and the Marco Simone Country Club. It's been brilliant having you on, hopefully not the last time. No, honestly, anytime you want and uh, keep up the good work. Great podcast. And um, I'm, I'm not quite Claude Harmon, but, um, you know, <laughs> hey, hopefully. You uh, talk a lot like him, That's good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, thanks for having me on, guys. Awesome thanks, stuff, mate. James. And uh, yeah, from myself and Zane, it is goodbye for another episode of The First Tee with DP World Tour. We've got loads of interviews in the pipeline. We will be in conversation with Tommy Fleetwood in the coming weeks as well. We're actually going to interview him out here in Dubai at his Tommy Fleetwood Academy in the next couple of weeks so we'll be able to get reaction from the man himself on uh, that brilliant moment as he clinched the Ryder Cup for Team Europe by a margin of 16.5 to an 11.5 over in Rome but for myself Robbie from Zane and from James it's goodbye from this edition of the first tee DP World Tour Dubai Eye 103.8 Join the conversation